Teach us, Lord, full obedience, uh, holy reverence and true humility before your word. Uh, Please, would we be those who hear and respond in faith uh, as you teach us now. For your name's sake. Amen. Last week we were thinking about generosity. uh, Generosity in giving, generosity uh, between the churches. And it raises a question for us as it raised the question for Paul. Because where there are generous sums of money involved, there's always the capacity for greed uh, to overcome goodness. So in a previous church that and I belonged to, our home group, there was a guy in our church who was a senior accountant uh, in South Africa. And he lived here but worked a lot of the time over there. And he worked a lot for the government. And it was well known to him and, uh, and the people he worked amongst that... Uh, whenever foreign aid came into South Africa, it would go into the Treasury and then the Chancellor would write cheques to members of the Cabinet. Uh, those of you who are from South Africa, I'm not particularly picking on your country, although I suspect you know these things already. Uh, for the sake of the recording that will be going on the internet, I, don't, I can't prove this, and I'm not going to name names either. But it wouldn't surprise us, would it? Uh, Some people somewhere are trying to do good for other people in another place, but the money gets diverted en route into somebody else's pocket. The same happens all over the world, and it can make us jaded and suspicious. And and to be honest, the internet hasn't helped in that, has it? Because you only need to Google corruption, and there will be hundreds, thousands of examples of this for us to, uh, to feed our insecurities with. And yet money is a good thing, isn't it? If we have it, it's a gift from God, a thing to be rejoiced in and given thanks for. But if our jaded, suspicious minds keep us from using that money to do good, if if good works don't get done because we don't give, if there are good works that depend on our generosity and they're never properly resourced, well, that is a tragedy, isn't it? Maybe you've had that experience. You get an email or a flyer through the door or you're watching a TV programme an advert comes up saying, please will you help us protect these Sumatran tigers or please give to these orphans over here or, or please support these Christians who are suffering in this other place. And you wonder, where will the money really go? Who's really benefiting from this? And that can be even more true in a Christian context, I, I used to uh, work for an audit practice, I'm an accountant by background, and uh, historically lots of the partners in our firm were Christians, and so lots of charities, Christian charities and churches, had us as their auditors. Uh, it seemed like a good fit. And it was uh, told to all the first years as we arrived in the firm that uh, most of the fraud that the firm had ever found was amongst Christian organisations. Now that might be because other organisations are just better at hiding it, If people are being deliberately fraudulent, they tend to be uh, better at hiding it. But the Christians, it it didn't seem to be malicious. It's just often, you know, the bookkeeper, bit short this month, I'll borrow some cash from the tin and never quite get round to repaying it. Uh, You'd like to think uh, that Christians with a developed doctrine of sin would be suspicious and try and put in place uh, good protocols to stop that sort of thing happening, checks and balances. But it appears not. And so we're suspicious and we become jaded. And it's not just the unseen 
greed either, is it? <clears throat> There's a whole global industry of prosperity preaching. Uh, telling uh, people, uh, if you give to me as the preacher uh, all of your money, God will bless you with health and wealth and happiness. Then you'll be rich and happy, I'll be rich and happy, everybody's happy. It is desperately common among the very poorest church communities of the world where the longing is greatest for God to bring his heavenly blessings into this world now as one American poet put it visualise heretics false teachers, heretics Christianising the American dream God wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy and we see all of this and we might become cynical can I trust anyone? Can I give at all? Is there any trust left? And at that moment, the devil has won, brothers and sisters. And that is the context for our passage this morning. Uh, We're both in the middle of the letter, in terms of passing through the chapters, and in the true heart of the letter. Today, we're introduced to the reason that Paul writes the letter. He tells us that he's writing to the Corinthians to introduce three people. They're introduced to us there in verses 16, 18 and 22. Uh, The three people who are bringing the letter to the church to persuade them to contribute to the fundraising that Paul is doing. uh, The the famine relief effort for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Just look at uh, 9 verse 2, slightly outside our passage, but I think it gives us context. I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them since last year that you in Achaia were ready to give. To the Corinthians, hear about this problem, these, uh, this famine that's coming, and, and the, the problem for the Jews in Jerusalem, and uh, they're willing to help, so eager to help, that Paul has held them up as, a, as an example to other churches, to the Christians in Macedonia in particular. And you remember from the beginning of this chapter, from Andy's talk last week, chapter 8, verse 1, that now Paul is holding up the Macedonians as an example of actually giving. He's holding them up to the Corinthians and saying, this is what it looks like to actually give. But it seems now that the Corinthians have cooled off. They were super keen last year, and now they've cooled off. Uh, You'll remember back in, uh, from from the first seven chapters, that there was a a false teacher spreading rumours about Paul in Corinth. Paul sent the severe letter with Titus, and we saw in chapter 7, didn't we, that they repented and uh, good relations were repaired. They dealt with the false teacher, they uh, corrected him. Titus comes back full of celebration, but it seems that along the way, some of the mud has stuck. How does Paul fund his ministry anyway? He doesn't come into town and say, I'll preach if you pay. He must be, be doing this fundraising to skim off the top. That must be how it happens. You can see how these rumours spread. And so the church are, are doubting Paul's integrity and it is preventing them from giving to support these Christians in another part of the world. And they're right, aren't they? If you can't trust the person you're giving the money to who's receiving the gift, then don't give. We're going to be held accountable by God for the way we've used the resources God has given us. If we're reckless, if we're careless, if we, if we throw it at a prosperity preacher like Paul, if they're after worldly wealth, then we'd be fools, wouldn't we? These Corinthians, they'd be fools to give if that's what Paul's up to. Can you see the problem? Do we feel the weight of it? Because I think we feel the same thing today, don't we? And so in our passage this morning, Paul is going to defend himself 
and his travelling companions against these claims. But, but he's not defending himself simply for his own honour's sake. We mustn't think that. It's not just to clear their names. Paul wants them to trust him fully so that they give as they've promised to, so that the church is blessed. It's good for them to give. We'll see that particularly next week. It's good for Paul's mission. And that ultimately is good because it's good for the gospel. It's good for the integrity of the church. It's good for the honour of Christ. That is what Paul is, is aiming at here. And I'll show you that as we go through our passage. So looking at your handout, first point, our financial integrity must be beyond question before man and God. Our financial integrity must be beyond question. See, the Corinthians are right to ask the question, aren't they? If Paul is a false apostle or he's grasping for himself, then they would be complicit in his deception, in his fleecing the church if they support him. They would be right to step back. And Paul has been arguing uh, right from the beginning of the book. Think of chapter 4, verse 2. By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul has been defending the integrity of his whole ministry. And so it is here. For his ministry to be acceptable, he must be and be seen to be above reproach. And so as we listen to Paul here, we're going to hear some wisdom for our own situation both within our church and the way we handle money here, and also more widely in terms of our giving uh, to other things. It's clear this is on Paul's mind. You can see that Paul is introducing three people, but in the middle of the the passage, he gives us verse 20, 21. Uh, Take a look down with me. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. That word liberal has all sorts of connotations in our culture, but it means simply here, large gift. And of course, the more money that's involved the more Paul has to be careful. The more money that's involved, the more likely there is that greed is going to sneak in and overcome good. Uh, And Paul is not here ducking fair criticism. Paul, you've got some shady practices and you need to deal with them. He's actually wanting to show there is no basis for this criticism at all. Verse 21, we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. See, God, God who knows all things... He knows whether Paul is honest better than Paul knows himself. That's not the problem here. Because people, who by definition know very little, and are prone to believing rumours, they need to see that Paul is honest. That's what Paul is engaged in here. Paul is making a priority of showing the integrity of his ministry and that of his friends. Not because his reputation is at stake, but because the gospel depends on it. So Paul sends... Uh, his three friends on ahead of him. I'm not going to touch the money, says Paul. I'm going to send Titus instead to, to be in charge of the collection, verse 16. And we know from chapter 7 that Titus had a very happy time. He came to the Corinthians with the severe letter, a bit worried that they were going to react badly, and they reacted brilliantly. And, Paul, and Titus comes back celebrating. It's wonderful news, Paul. We've got on really well. They, they treat me very well. They have one another's trust, you see. Titus is one of them now. And that's pretty much what Paul says, isn't it? Verse 23, as he sums up these three men, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. He's your man. He's your friend. He's he's done great work amongst you, but but remember, he's my partner too. He bridges the gap here between uh, Paul and them. So Titus, verse 16, uh, shares the same concern I have for you. And verse 17, he's coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. 
Titus, you see, is passionate. Passionate for the Corinthians. And they know it. He's the perfect bridge between Paul's wider mission and their deep concerns that Paul might be skimming off the top. They trust him. Paul trusts him. Titus is a great go-between. But what about these two unnamed other men in the passage? Could they be Paul's agents? So Titus is the, is the trusted man, but they, they, they sneak in behind and, and skim off on Paul's behalf. Is that what's going on? Well, notice again verse 23, as Paul sums up, he describes them as representatives of the churches. That seems to be the Macedonian churches. That's where Paul has been most recently. And the Macedonians, remember, have given generously to Paul's mission. And to make sure the money gets where it's supposed to go, they've sent along a bunch of their own guys to sort of to be a guard, a guard for Paul's uh, travelling group uh, and to keep an eye on the money. They might be the junior men in this little travelling band of three who are coming up to Corinth, but they're good men. Notice again, the end of verse 23, they are an honour to Christ. Verse 18, one of them is described as praised by all the churches for his service of the gospel, which is to say, he's a faithful preacher. These are not Paul's agents. They're not his chosen companions. They're the people who've been imposed on him, if you like, to make sure that everything is above board. They're good men. They've been chosen by their churches because they're true gospel men, full of integrity, who are determined to make sure the money gets where it was intended to go. Do you see this? There's nothing unchristian about having an audit. There's nothing unchristian about having proper procedures in place, checks and balances. In fact, having these checks and balances in this situation allows Paul to step back and say, look, I'm not touching the money. I'm above reproach in this. And so his integrity is established. Their integrity is established. And so the reputation of the gospel is established. I take it this is useful for us as we think about our own situation, first of all, as a church. See, the details of giving to our church here at CC, most people give through standing order, is handled by the finance team for co-mission up in Dundonald, up in Rains Park. And that gives us as an eldership distance. We don't see the numbers. We don't, uh, we don't have any sort of direct handling of the, of the money. That allows us to step back and say, we're not in it for the money. We're not skimming off the top. And the finance team up there, well, they, they're subject to an independent audit every year to make sure that we're getting what's given to the church without them skimming off the top. And, and, and our budgets, well, they, they get presented before uh, the, the, the partnership, the, the, the ministry team, the senior ministry team of co-mission to make sure that we're spending it in the right places. There are checks and balances. We're not in it for the money. And goodness me, no. These, these things enable us as a, as a ministry to hold our hands up and say... We have integrity and you're welcome to go and take a look. Uh, that's important, isn't it? Because you need to know that if you're giving to the ministry here, that it's going to the places we say it's going and not into somebody's back pocket. But what about other organisations? Those, those things are a bit more of a distance from us. How carefully do we ask as individuals, is this going where they say it's going? Well, think of it, the Corinthians, they, they would want to give to the Jerusalem church, but they want to give through Titus because they trust him. He's a conduit. He's, he's, a, he's the bag man, but he's one they trust. And I think for that reason, many of us, if we give outside of, of, of local church, we give to support people we know. 
uh, charities we're familiar with, people we've been involved with, ministries we've been stuck into before, we find it much harder to give at a great distance, don't we? We hear of of some need in a far-flung place where we don't know anybody, and we want to help, but we're just not convinced the money will get where where we want it to go. And, And so perhaps a question for us to discuss later as a church is whether we ought to be doing pooling our giving in that sort of way, whether there's a way that we can work together so we can appoint people from the church to say, actually, it's your job to make sure that this money goes where it's supposed to go. Be a Titus, be, be like these two men. And maybe that's a way we can make sure that we can give with integrity. Brothers and sisters, we do have a responsibility to give wisely. I think the Corinthians are right to ask the question, do we? Do we give? But as Paul establishes his integrity and that of his travelling bands, his, his financial dealings, they're open to inspection. You can come and have a look. But actually, because of that, the challenge is pushed back to the Corinthians. So verse 24, as Paul concludes and gives us his command for the passage, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Paul says, look, my ministry is open to inspection. All the churches can see it. And so now the question is about your integrity, you Corinthians. You need to be as we are, above reproach in the eyes of the churches. You have to treat these honourable men with honour, and you need to give as you've promised. That brings us to our second point. Our, Our financial integrity must be beyond question. Why? Because it enables confidence and joyful giving. Remember, Paul's purpose here has not been simply to defend his practice Rather, by defending himself and his band, he's in a position to appeal to the Corinthians to fulfil their vows. He's seeking to motivate them towards generosity by removing that stumbling block that rightly would inhibit them from giving. Paul has no no desire to turn up with a a stern face and and a tin and rattle it in their faces He will not force them to give. So at 9 verse 5, we'll come to that next week, but take a look. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, a grace gift, and not as as something grudgingly given. Paul, remember, is motivated by the grace of the gospel. So are the Macedonians. They're, They're full of the grace of the gospel, and so should the Corinthians be. This is not Paul coming to exact from them what they don't want to give, but he's establishing his integrity so that they will give what they've said they want to give. But the Corinthians are in danger of embarrassing, embarrassing themselves. And Paul, take a look at 9 verse 4. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. Paul has been holding them up as an example to the churches, to the Macedonians. And the Macedonians have copied them. Joyful generosity, remember last week, joyful generosity. What a privilege it must be to be a church that is so good, so godly, that Paul would hold you up as an example to the rest of the world and say, this is what it looks like to be a model church. Well, that's what's happened to the Corinthians. But now, Paul's in danger of turning up at the church and finding that they were all mouth and no trousers. He's going to turn up with the Macedonians in tow, only to find that they've changed their minds. And so Paul writes to them to defend his team, yes, in order to motivate them, to to take away the stumbling block that prevents them from fulfilling their promises. So even as Paul is writing to defend his team, he stresses that they're they're really after the good of the Corinthians. We'll see just to what extent that's the case next week, but 
He says here, Titus, verse 16, shares Paul's concern for you. Not for himself, not for, not for Jerusalem, but for you. And the third brother, verse 22, is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. Now that zeal word comes up all through this passage. It's, it's the word for enthusiasm or concern here. It's an energetic, passionate, total commitment to the good of the other. And Paul's team are full of this, this longing and this deep passion for the good of the Corinthians. He, he, he wants to save them from embarrassing themselves, of course. I mean, that's, that's a low bar. But it's more than that. They, they want to grow in grace, to grow in dependence on God, to grow in, in commitment, to enthusiasm, that same passionate commitment to God and the gospel that Paul himself is displaying. This is not the attitude of somebody who's trying to fleece the church. This is somebody who is desperate for the good of the church. And generosity is part of that. Now, of course, few of us are in this same situation. Few of us, I think, have made promises. Hello, cat. Few of us have made promises and failed to keep them. Few of us have committed to giving and then backed out of it. So our situation is different, but it may be that some of us here are... Uh, being kept back from giving something because we're not sure that we can trust the people we would give to. Well, let me ask, are we willing to pursue the evidence? Are we willing to look to make sure the money is going to go where it's supposed to go so that we are free to give, that our consciences would be clear? Are we prepared to do that? But this second point really for us is a stepping stone towards Paul's ultimate purpose and one which ought to land for every single one of us. I know the cat's very distracting, everyone. Please look at your Bibles and not at the cat that's come in the door. Every eye is looking out the door towards the, the little black cat that's just come in. Paul's concern is not ultimately for the good of the Corinthians or for his own reputation, but for the glory of God and the good of the gospel. Financial integrity enables confidence and joyful giving Third point, so that the church is served to the glory of God. And Paul tells us in two places in our passage of his greatest concern and the reason he's on his missionary journey at all. See, think of Paul. He could be doing any number of things. He could be writing commentaries. He could be uh, travelling around, preaching all over the world. I'm sure he is doing lots of those things. He writes letters everywhere he goes to encourage the churches. But the thing that Paul is about, the thing that drives chapters 8 and 9 in our, in our letter here is the thing that Paul is most engaged in. It's to go on this fundraising journey. And the key text for us on this point is verse 19. Take a look at it with me. End of verse 19. We administer this gift in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. Two motivations there. Paul's primary concern, you see, is God's honour. Not Paul's own reputation, it's not his, it's not, it's not the Corinthians' reputation either, although that is an issue, but it is God's. Because these three, three things are bound up together. Paul's reputation, the Corinthians, and God's reputation, they're bound up together. It's an idea that comes up in verse 23. We've already looked at it. These two unnamed travel companions, they're called an honour to Christ. They are, uh, their lives are such good reflections of who Jesus is that they are an adornment to Christ. They reflect Christ. That's the basis of Paul's appeal in verse 24. Don't dishonour these men. Don't dishonour them when they are so honourable 
to the glory of Jesus. And that's Paul's aim too, isn't it? Verse, 20, verse 19, rather. He's on this journey for the honour of the Lord himself. See, Corinth is not Paul's aim. Extracting money from the Corinthians is not his aim. He doesn't want money for himself either, or even the relief of the saints, although we'll get to that. Paul wants something more. He wants the action of the church to testify to the greatness of God. Paul's second motivation is related to that. It's there in verse 19, right at the end of the verse, to show our eagerness to help. It's the same word again, that enthusiasm word, the eagerness for the Corinthians. But it's not the, Corin- the Corinthians who are in view anymore, it's, it's the Jerusalem saints. The same passion that Paul has for the Corinthians is the passion that he has for the Jerusalem saints. He wants to do them good. He wants to help. He's passionate about it. He loves the church. And these two things are bound together, aren't they? So think of Galatians 2.10. Paul visits the, the church in Jerusalem. They have a natter. And they say, whatever you do, Paul, just remember the poor. And Paul says, I, I'm delighted to remember the poor. The Christian poor, that is, all over the world. And Paul is good to his word, isn't he? Paul loves the church. He wants to see the whole church love the whole church, take care of their own, so God gets the glory. I think of verse 13, uh, we, we saw last week. Paul says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. The whole church caring for the whole church. But there's a second and even more glorious principle here. Paul says elsewhere, doesn't he, that the the Gentile church has received the spiritual blessings of the Jews, and so the Jews ought to receive the financial blessings of the Gentiles. See, that's the key here. Paul is travelling around the Gentile majority churches that he has established to care for an almost entirely Jewish church in Jerusalem. Why? Because this is the chance for the world to see how big a deal the gospel is and what the gospel has accomplished. Think about it. Paul is passionate to show that the Jew and the Gentile, the profoundest of enemies, can be united in brotherly love through the same gospel. He says so in in Ephesians 2. We'll come to Ephesians in small groups next year. uh, That the two enemies have been united in one body, the church. And it's as the church grasps what's happened how united we are from every tribe and tongue and nation and brought together in one body in Christ. As we put that on display, as we say this is who we are in Christ, that the world sees how profound the gospel is. Yes, of course, giving to the saints in Jerusalem will do good to the church, and that is a positive thing, and Paul loves that. But it's, it's as the church, as diverse as it is, unites to care for one another that the glory of God is seen. Think of Hutu and Tutsi in Rwanda, united in one church, loving one another. What a profound statement of the reconciling power of the gospel. And that is what Paul is doing here. I know enough of you well enough these days to know that many of us, maybe all of us, are motivated by the gospel in our, in our love for one another, in our care for one another, in our generosity to the, the giving of the church as well. <clears throat> And I'm not saying at this point that we forget what we've seen already in this passage, that we actually have got to look for integrity, both in our church and in our giving elsewhere. But are we motivated in the same way that Paul is motivated? 
to show our gospel unity by caring for Christians in very difficult situations. I think it's very comfortable for us in Ellsville, aren't they, really, in many respects. What about across class boundaries? Uh, for those of you who aren't British, just bear with me on this one, but it's a big issue historically in our country. What about, let's think of Arnie Pelosi down there at Longheath on the Council of State Ministry down there. How can we support them as they do a, a faithful but very difficult work in a very poor neighbourhood? Well, we could multiply that a hundred times over in, in urban priority areas all around the country where faithful ministries are working with very slim resources to support people who are very poor, to love them and show the, the power of the gospel in their communities. And we could multiply that a thousand times in other ways, couldn't we, across ethnic boundaries, across geographical boundaries. And I don't mean just let's supply gospel workers, of course, that's one way that we can serve poorer communities. We send missionaries to places where they can't afford to have their own gospel workers. We support churches in all sorts of ways in that way. Of course we should do that. We must do that. But are we just willing to get alongside churches who are desperately suffering for, for the name of Christ? Are we prepared to show that, spiritually speaking, we are brothers and sisters and we know it, and we'll stand with those folk? You can think of Christians who've been suffering for, for a decade now in Iraq or in Syria or Burma or, frankly, any place where Christianity is a minority religion pretty much anywhere in the world. You can find Churches that are desperately suffering. Of course we need to take care. Of course throwing money at poverty doesn't make it go away and, and doesn't solve all the problems. And so we must be wise. And I'm sure there are people here who are much wiser than me on these things. But it's also true that in some of the harshest environments to live in the world, it is Christians who suffer most. Think of uh, aid that's given to uh, to victims of the tsunami back in Indonesia. It was the Christians who suffered most because a Muslim-majority government wouldn't give them the aid relief. And so it's the Christians who starve. Are we prepared to step in, to stand united with our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering terribly for the name of Christ and demonstrate the glory of our God, the power of the gospel, to unite us as one body? Well, brothers and sisters, if you're, if you're willing and able to do something about this, come and talk to me afterwards. We can talk about how we as a church might testify to our unity with these brothers and sisters around the world. But we're out of time and I need to pray. Let's pray. Our glorious God, your gospel is uh, amazing. That we who had no right to be part of the natural olive tree of the people of Israel have been brought in by your grace and can testify to the uh, profound spiritual benefits of being Christians and so we want to share our blessings with others who uh, are going to join us in eternity please show us how please help us as a church to to do these things uh, to the honour and glory of your name Amen